Hi, and welcome to A Word of Advice, a podcast series in association with Brooks McDonald. I'm Katrin Schindler from CityWire, and my guests today are Ewan Miller, Senior Investment Director at Brooks McDonald, and his colleague Joe Capaldi, who's an Investment Director. In this episode, we'll be delving into AIM shares, what they are, why they matter, and how you can invest in them. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Yes, good to be here. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the AIM market, let's take a broader look at the whole AIM market. What is it actually? What's, what makes it special? What should people know about it? Yeah. You and if you want to kick off. Yeah, why not? Um, so the AIM market is basically the junior listed market within the London Stock Exchange. So unlike the FTSE 100 or the FTSE 250, um, it's um, yeah the junior piece of the, the London Stock Exchange. And so it's a very big market in terms of the number of companies that are listed there. So there's over 800 companies listed. So obviously, you know, a lot more than, say, the FTSE 100. Um, and it is um, a place where you'll find a lot of um, small and mid-cap uh, type companies listing. Um, so the regulations and rules for listing are a little bit less onerous. And um, which does mean for those smaller entrepreneurial businesses, um, it's um, an easier place to list. It, it doesn't cost as much to list. And the um, rules around listing are a little bit less onerous, as I say. So, for example, being listed on AIM means that you uh, have to uh, report full audited accounts twice a year, um, but not, um, not as many as four times a year. Um, so, yeah, for, for these smaller companies, they're still big companies, of course, you know, employing hundreds or in some cases even thousands of people. Um, but it does just make getting access to the capital market that little bit easier. Um, and that's why it is an attractive um, market for a lot of companies to list on. Is it a problem that regulations, as you just mentioned, are less strict than in other markets, for example? Is that something investors are worried about or should be worried about? The companies are researched very thoroughly by both sell-side research analysts and buy-side research analysts like ourselves. Um, so um, it's not something that I would um, describe as a risk or a worry, certainly not from our perspective. You need to do your homework, make sure that you are researching the companies properly and going through the accounts as, as, as you would in any equity research process, really. So um, I certainly don't feel like the um, regulatory aspect is, is a risk um, in any more so than it would be for other listed companies. Uh, and I generally agree with that. I think, you know, one of the key differences with, with AIM, I suppose, is that, you know, when a company comes to list on the AIM market, they don't necessarily need to formally publish a prospectus like you would on the main market. Um, you know, that would then have to be approved by the FCA. Whereas on AIM, what will typically happen is the company will offer its shares to a selected number of investors rather than the wider general public. And as a result, you know, they only need to submit what's you know, referred to as an admission document, um, which will detail much the same details of a formal prospectus would. But Unlike you know being quoted on the main market where that requires a whole process with the FCA, this is then just pre-approved by the exchange. Um, so it's a wee bit more um, small company friendly, I suppose, in terms of you know slightly faster listing process, wee bit less you know arduous um, due diligence required, I suppose. But you know it's still there in some shape or form due to the the way the market has been structured from the get go. Apart from 
um, the things you just mentioned, is there anything else investors should be mindful of when it comes to investing in small caps? Because as you mentioned, it's basically a small cap story, the A market. It is very much a small cap story. Um, and sm small cap stocks are very interesting. There's a lot of companies, you know, just by definition of the numbers that you absolutely want to avoid. Um, and we make sure, you know, we do that. Um, and then you focus your efforts on the higher quality pool of companies. Um, but you need to really do your research and, you know, go through the, the company's accounts, read external research, meet with the management teams and challenge them on their strategic um, um, plans for the company. Um, but yes, smaller company investing does offer a lot of great opportunities. Um, you know, people talk about the small cap premium, which essentially is um, shows us that over the longer term, smaller company stocks outperform their larger cap peers. They're smaller and more nimble companies, so they're able to, um, um, you know, operate in markets and disrupt markets and take market share from larger incumbent operators. And ultimately, they're growing their profits, smaller companies, from smaller bases. Um, so if you're a large cap stock, a Unilever or a BP or you know an AstraZeneca or something like that, if you're able to grow your profits sort of you know three, four, five, six percent a year, you know that's a a great result because you're already um, starting from a profits base that's at, you know well into the billions. And um, whereas for smaller companies, because they're smaller to start with, the opportunity to grow. And from that smaller profits base uh, exists and um, means that in terms of finding great long-term growth opportunities, um, the smaller company's um, space is, is a really exciting space to invest. I think with that smaller company's theme, you know, what, what are the advantages we see within that area of the market or opportunities rather is, you know, as Ewan rightly says, you know, it is, it is broad and it is pretty underfollowed in general, that can often lead to, you know, great mispricing opportunities simply because a company is misunderstood relative to its its fundamentals or, or cautious guidance that, you know, management have put out there. Um, the other option, you know, or opportunity rather that we have touched on already in this conversation is the matter of liquidity. Now, with that lack of liquidity does lead to volatility in share prices in the short term, but you know that leads to an opportunity to potentially buy in at better prices for those who do have a longer term view when there is a pullback. Um, clearly, you know you need to be doing very detailed due diligence and research of the, these companies to make sure that you know a short-term fall in a share price that isn't you know a precursor to a longer-term problem. But um, you know that that's where the opportunity lies, and for those who are willing to, you know, quite honestly, roll their sleeves up and do the the hard work, you know, it's where where real returns and, and big returns could be made relative to to larger companies in many ways. How does it look like in practice, though, at Brooks McDonald? As in, how do you identify companies that have the growth potential? How do you separate the weed from the Jeff, basically? Yes, yeah, so we've got a, a high level investment research process and um, so we've got um, a number of steps in that where we're really um, at, at an early stage looking to um, exclude companies that we know we're not going to be interested in so I've already mentioned the liquidity hurdle so anything that's too small we exclude um, and anything that um, is um, in the oil and gas or mining sectors we also exclude there 
um, um, often companies that are difficult from a business property relief perspective, which I'm sure we'll come on to, um, but um, also from a purely investment perspective, um, oil and gas and mining companies in the smaller company space um, do tend to be more volatile. Um, the outcomes, you know, if you think of an oil and gas E&P exploration and production company drilling for oil, um, they'll either hit it or they won't. And the outcomes of that from a share price perspective can be pretty binary. You know, the, the share price takes off or it, you know, heads, it heads through the floor. Um, so we just don't like that risk reward profile. So we exclude those sectors in their entirety. Um, and then the final high level step that we have is we um, exclude any companies that are not profitable. So we only uh, want to invest in companies that have got demonstrable track records of profitability and cash generation. Um, and again, um, that is just removing some of the more volatile, higher risk companies at an early stage. Um, so you'll get a, quite a lot of pre-profitability stories in the A market. So companies that are putting all of their financial resource behind the success or otherwise of a new technology or drug or treatment. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, that can be an exciting and potentially successful place to invest. It is just higher risk and more volatile, and we prefer to focus our efforts um, on businesses that are already a bit more assured in terms of their um, profit generation, their, their cash generation. Um, so those three steps whittle that 800 or so companies down to a much smaller, um, more manageable, higher quality pool of companies. Um, and that typically leaves about 150 companies. And which is still a lot. Which is still a lot, exactly, yeah. But that's where we really focus our intensive in-house research efforts. So as I've mentioned, um, sort of meeting management teams is a, a real um, uh, core pillar of what we do from an investment research perspective. How many days a year would you say are you on the road meeting management teams? Um, yeah, I mean, the management teams, the management meetings are, are very regular. I mean, but it's um, as we've uh, come to learn in this kind of post-COVID world, um, the um, sort of teams and Zoom calls yeah. um, are quite uh, common. Um, don't and we love them all? <laughs> don't, don't we just? Um, but yeah, they are a very, um, you know, useful resource and they're very efficient a lot of the time rather than, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, companies come around and roadshow uh and we've got a lot of companies that come through our offices and we meet them face to face and that's very important. Um, but the convenience of being able to have Zoom or Teams calls um, means that we can keep up to date with the companies that we're invested in. Typically, we'll meet and speak to management at least twice a year. And then we're having all of the meetings with um, the management teams of companies that we're considering for investment. Um, so that's very, very important. Speaking of selling companies, how long is your investment horizon basically? On average, on occasion, you know, you do get the decision taken out of your hands. You know, theme you and I have discussed in quite a bit of detail over the last year has been um, companies being taken over, particularly within within the Brooks McDonald AIM portfolios, but also more widely in the AIM market. And that's partly as a result of you know the decline with the value of sterling in recent years. You know, overseas investors, you know, acquiring UK based companies, um, uh, you know. But in addition to that, it's the part of the reason for that is because a lot of these companies that are actually looking to list on AIM in the first place are growing leaders within a particular niche. And, you know, once they do list, they've 
they've raised that growth capital, reinvested, they've grown some more. They've got a demonstrable, um, you know, sort of trend of growth that's, you know, the outlook's fairly rosy. So from a, a larger company perspective, AIM provides certainly attractive, I would say, bolt-on acquisition opportunities, which then from our perspective, you know, has has a couple of potential benefits. One is that you, you know, you're constantly reviewing valuations and whether they're attractive, um, you know, partly to outsiders, but also then if a company is taken over, you often get that a significant premium to what the market value was, you know, trading on, on the stock market beforehand. Um, the one frustration about that is, of course, you know, sometimes companies get acquired a bit too cheaply for our liking. Um, but it does mean you have to be scouring the, the AIM marketplace more widely, you know, consistently, because if a more attractive opportunity comes along, if you suddenly have a cash position, and it's important for us not to have that as a, an inheritance tax relief service, we have to be fully invested at all times. Um, you know, we have to have other opportunities in the pipeline. And so that that's where this ongoing approach to you know, research is is all, all important in what we do. Just, just to add to that, so we typically we expect turnover of the, por- of the portfolio to be about 10 to 15% a year. Um, so the midpoint of that being 12.5%, and that would imply an average holding period of eight years for, for the stocks. Um, obviously, that's the theory. I mean, as Joe says, a lot of times decisions are taken out with their hands if a company's acquired, or in a, a couple of instances, we've had companies delisting from AIM for one reason or another. Um, but typically, in terms of um, investment horizon, and, and from a turnover perspective, the average we would expect to be about an eight-year holding period. But for a lot of companies, you know, it's it's much much greater than that. And we, uh, for many of the companies in the portfolios, we could see as holding them for um, you know a great deal longer than that. Is there one specific sector, I'm not asking for company examples because you probably won't be able to share them, but one specific sector where you can, that you find particularly appealing right now? The portfolio has got quite a lot of exposure to the broad technology sector, and if I could describe it as that. So we've got um, a lot of, well, several companies in the portfolio that are involved in the video gaming industry. Um, so uh, some of those are content creators that actually produce the video games. Uh, others are um, more involved with providing outsourced services to those video games content creators. Um, we've got other areas, again, under the kind of broad technology banner um, that are providing uh, software solutions, typically via SaaS-type contracts, software-as-a-service contracts um, and several of those holdings are in the regulatory and compliance space, um, a space where there's been an awful lot of uh, growth um, um, across most sectors of the economy. Um, So that's an area that we like a lot. Um, Other areas are um, e-commerce. Again, you know, thinking under this kind of technology headline. Um, So not necessarily companies that just sell their products or wares online, um, but in a lot of instances, companies that provide the infrastructure that enables uh, uh, e-commerce to take place, whether that's the um, you know I- identity verification or location services or some of the other um, technical um, uh, infrastructure requirements that are needed for e-commerce to take place. Um, so that broad technology area is where we've got um, a lot of exposure. There's a lot of great growth stories in the A market that operate in that space. Um, and the other significant sector that we've got 
um, exposure to is the healthcare sector. Um, so the healthcare sector is a sector that's really buoyed by two um, long-term sort of mega trends, I guess I could, could describe them as. Um, so the first being the continued uh, aging of the demographic in the developed world. Um, and the second being the continued growth of the middle classes in the emerging world. Um, and those two you know, long-term trends um, mean that the propensity to spend on healthcare is going to increase for you know, many years to come. And therefore that provides a great kind of backdrop to finding um, excellent companies that operate within that, within that sector. Um, and that significant tailwind from those two demographic trends um, means that, you know, fundamentally there's a lot of growth within that sector. I think, you know, one, one of the things that, you know, are, are drawn from both of those sectors and often the tech side is associated with higher risk, particularly as we've seen within the last year, you know, a lot of these technology companies though, and Ewan has alluded it to them, they're, you know, contracting their business on annual recurring uh, SaaS contracts or software as a service. So we can see the the degree of customers that that these companies have, the rate of growth they are, the you know experiencing and signing on new ones, but then also the the underlying churn in customers. So you can get a good degree of feel for actually what the revenues are going to look like year to year, and therefore this isn't you know sort of fintech pre profitability type companies where there's there's a high degree of risk. Um, so I mean that that's one of the things I'd certainly touch on. Obviously, the healthcare aspect. You know, there's a long-term structural tailwind there, just simply due to the factors Ewan's touched upon. Um, so I think, you know, AIM has historically got a bit of a bad rap as a result of you know being you know historically sort of stereotypical, you know, risky, you know, low-quality companies, unprofitable. But I think you know, AIM has grown up since the 90s and, you know, today now stands at over 800 companies, average market cap's above 80 million, um, you know, and th there's a, an increasingly larger proportion of institutional investors now looking at this market. Um, it used to be the case that, you know, a lot of the investment community would just exclude AIM entirely and only focus on the, the main market. That's no longer the case. AIM has very much grown up over the past 20, 80 years. Um, and, and we think it's a you know great source of opportunity for, for clients, not just from the inheritance tax release, but also from a return perspective. Meaning it has lost a bit of its dodgy reputation over the last, I don't know, five, ten years. I think so. But, you know, if, if you're coming to, to market and, you know, especially if you're a broker or, or a nomad and looking to consistently you know, generate profits for yourself by effectively sponsoring these smaller companies on team and raising capital for them, it, it's not a sustainable business model if you're going to continue to, to raise capital capital for companies that aren't of a reasonable quality. And I think that's partly why it's been to some extent a sink or swim scenario for AIM and why it's it's of the quality it is now. AIM as a whole is is now Europe's largest and most successful growth market by, you know, funding values that are raised, you know, on an annual basis. And we don't see any reason why that won't continue. It has earned its it, you know, it's reversed its poor reputation of the past and being seen one of an increasingly higher quality market. Now, you just mentioned nomads or nominated advisors. What's your stance on them? 
So, I mean, first and foremost with Nomads, they are effectively um, seen as the company that sponsors a, a company that's looking to list on AIM to the market. They effectively are holding the company up to you know, certain standards that are expected of them to you know, uh, promote and, and maintain the integrity of the AIM market. But, but secondly, they also often act as the company's um, broker in most cases. A company is required to not only have a nomad, which is the nominated advisor, um, from a regulatory perspective to list on AIM, but are also expected to have a broker at all times. And as a broker, they're effectively responsible for making sure the company's story that it's telling to the market and investors is one that's attractive enough to raise additional capital, and then for you know for that capital to be allocated to the company and invested for growth in the long term. Um, that is continually reviewed by the nomad going forward, and therefore it, it is seen as a and it does happen on occasion, a monster red flag if a, a company's nomad effectively abdicates from its role. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, they're almost, uh, I wouldn't go as far as being seen as a policeman of AIM, but <laughs> there's an element of that in the background. Now, one aspect to wrap it up that you've both touched on is the benefit of AIM shares for inheritance tax. What exactly do those benefits look like? So I think, by way of a bit of background and just, you know, the, the reliefs that are there and the history, you know, the, the BPR, the Business Property Relief, actually came into existence in 1976. And this was originally set up so that, you know, a, a family business um, upon the death of the, the principal founder didn't have to be broken up um, to pay for a large inheritance tax bill. In the 1990s, that was extended to limited companies and, and AIM-quoted companies because very often what you would have with AIM is a founder-managed business looking to raise additional capital and, and looking for an AIM quotation um, as a manner of, of raising that additional capital to scale up. Um, so that that's why the reliefs exist, I think, Structurally, from a, a UK industrial and economic policy from the government, this has been supported for many decades now, um, principally because AIM as a whole adds you know, billions in terms of pounds worth of gross value added on an annual basis relative to you know, the tens of millions that are typically foregone in, in inheritance tax relief receipts on an annual basis. Um, so that that's the reason why why the relief exists and why you know still to today, despite aim companies being being very large in some cases, the reliefs are still there. I think you know it, it would be a very tricky circumstance for any government coming into power to look at removing that relief as well, because you know potentially there would be a degree of market turbulence that I don't think any chancellor would necessarily want to oversee. Um, but it, it certainly, you know, stacks up in terms of the tax revenues that are generated from, you know, whether it's corporation tax, national insurance, etc., relative to the, the inheritance tax that, that's forgone. And, and for that reason, we believe, um, you know, the, the release are certainly here to stay. Um, and as Joe says, it's, um, you know, been a hugely successful market for the UK economy in terms of the, the you know, the employment that it's created, the, the, the GDP contribution from an economic perspective. And most other developed countries look to the UK's junior aim market with a great deal of envy um, for those reasons, for, for the, you know, economic benefits that it 
um, has brought to the country. Um, from a standalone investment perspective, I think you know it's a, it's a great investment opportunity. Investing in AIM shares for a lot of the reasons that we've that we've outlaid, but from the business property relief aspect, and therefore the inheritance tax and um, benefits that investing in AIM shares provides, i.e., ultimately a forty percent saving um, when one um, has been invested for two years, and ultimately avoids having to pay inheritance tax on the value of their uh, AIM portfolio. Um, if you'd couple the investment perspective opportunity with those inheritance tax benefits for um, certain individuals and based on their own um, own, own situation, their own circumstance, um, it really is quite a compelling uh, opportunity all in. So it sounds wonderful. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, we enjoyed the conversation.